Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Sergeant Gordon Roberts. Roberts was serving with Bravo Company, part of the 1st Battalion, 506th Infantry. That's rolled up under the 101st Airborne Division. And the time period we're going to talk about is in July of 1969 during the Vietnam War. So the Vietnam War, if we back off for a little bit, is going to be a civil war between North Vietnam and South. The way that the war will take place is going to end up being kind of a battlefield from with involving countries from around the world. So the period that we're most familiar with um, in the United States is going to be generally the mid-60s, 64, 65, really, until the early 70s, right around 1972. That seven or eight-year window is when the bulk of American forces are going to be in Vietnam. Now, they're going to be in South Vietnam with the idea of being helping to support and defend the South Vietnamese people and the government from an incursion from North Vietnam. So North Vietnam is supported and backed by the communist countries around the world at the time, the um, the Soviet Union, China, North Korea to a degree. And and it's, it's a zero sum game viewed around the world really by both parties. That's how the U S viewed it, but it's, it's in fairness, that's very similar to how the Soviet Union viewed it as well. So even a country like South Vietnam that doesn't have major strategic value by any stretch of the imagination for the United States or Australia or Great Britain or any or France or any other country that's going to be involved and, and lose soldiers in this conflict. It's very, very important because it is close, we should say, to fall into communism. It's close because North Vietnam is communist and North Vietnamese and South Vietnamese are all Vietnamese. It's one country divided down the middle after the second world war. And there are relatives on each side of this line. It's everybody speaks a common language. They inhabit a relatively small country. It's, it's an area that we can very easily see turning communist unless people will go there and ensure by force that it doesn't. And that's really simplifying it. There's a lot of factors that kind of lead up to American involvement Um, in the mid 60s. But at the end of the day, that's going to be the high level strategic goal. We can't let South Vietnam fall to communism. By 1969, we have quite a few soldiers, Marines, airmen. When I say soldiers, I'm, I'm referring to all American service members. So we have quite a few on the ground in Vietnam by 1969. And that's going to be the peak year or right in the peak window for about 600,000 uh, combat troops, or, or not just combat troops, just overall troops in Vietnam. And it would see some of the heaviest fighting, see some of the most casualties that the United States would suffer. And then we start to wind down by 1972, just about completely pulled out of the country. But one of the challenges in Vietnam is that it's a war for the people. So we kind of worked the entire conflict trying to figure out how to fight that war maybe, or how to win that war. I don't know that in the midst of the fighting that we, as the United States, as the military nailed down a solid strategy. I think even looking back today, we can still 
tweak certain areas and, and see what may have worked. And there were certain things that definitely didn't work and some that helped and some that didn't help. But I can't say that we know exactly what we should have done to shorten that conflict and maybe reduce the number of casualties on all sides. We can't say that we know exactly what we should have done because we, if we had the answer, we probably would have used a very, very similar model in Iraq and Afghanistan. And as we all know, we're still learning in both of those conflicts. We certainly didn't hit the ground um, with a perfect playbook there. So one of the strategies that's going to be pursued in Vietnam is this idea of attrition. It's going to be a major, major overarching strategy. It's going to tie into a lot of analysis of the war, the attrition of the North Vietnamese regular army, as well as the Viet Cong, which are their guerrilla supporters in South Vietnam. Oh, not just guerrilla supporters, but, but militants. I mean, they're, they're formed into um, military style organizations and, and substantial strength and fighting capacity, the Viet Cong. So let's not, um, I don't mean to downplay their role in the conflict, but the idea is if we can kill enough of these enemy fighters before long, there's not going to be a threat from North Vietnam. Again, this is a small country and we've got things like high level bombers and Hueys that can, can, fly our troops in on the top of, of these enemy soldiers and wipe out their, their command post in the jungle. We've got long range artillery. We have the Marines. We've got the airborne army, airborne troops. Like what are they going to do? We can eventually kill enough of them potentially um, to level the playing field. They're not going to have an offensive capability. That's not going to end up being the case, but it's going to be a strategy generally that we pursue for a while. Now, if we're going to in a war of the people where we need the support of the people, but we also need to, or, or think that we need to kill as many enemy soldiers as possible to um, reduce their offensive capacity. You don't want to do that in the villages. You don't want to do that in the city centers because now the people that you're, you're telling the people we're here to protect you and simultaneously turning their village into a battlefield. So maybe they support you and, and maybe those South Vietnamese residents out there in the jungle in their small village support South Vietnam and the Americans, but it's a gamble because maybe before you showed up, it was relatively peaceful. And now you show up and there's a fight raging all around and there's collateral damage and you've lost family members, your farm's destroyed. So if we have to take the fight to the enemy, let's do what we can and not do it in a population center. Let's do it away from the population for a couple of reasons. One, we don't risk as much collateral damage to the people that we are there in support of and trying to, to defend, but also um, it will keep the enemy away from these population centers. So if we can move away from the population hub out into, in Vietnam, that's going to be, the population is going to be aligned um, mostly along the, the or, excuse me, along the coastline. It's a very thin, long, thin country that runs North to South and the, uh, I think it's the South China sea on the Eastern um Eastern side of the country. Yeah. South China sea. Most of the population is going to be on that border, but there's still a lot of land, a fair amount of land West of those population hubs. The military is going to try to go find enemy forces in those areas. Again, a big oversimplification and fight them away from the population hubs. And there's going to be a series of operations to do that. It also kind of got side railed there. Um, that's going to keep the enemy away from these population centers as well. If we can tie them up out there in the valleys and the, the mountains and the jungles, then they're less likely to be in the population centers 
changing the mind of the people that we are there to, to protect. So what you end up seeing are a lot of named operations that when you go back and look at them, all kind of sound alike. Named operations, as in it's not just another day of patrols, which is something that is common in Vietnam and conflicts since, where it's not a major operation or a major battle, but it's a standard patrol and three Americans die or 12 North Vietnamese are killed. And that's just on a Wednesday. It's not part of a major overreaching operation or overall operation. It's just combat in Vietnam. Now in 1969, well, let me say that um, Sergeant Gordon Roberts is going to arrive in Vietnam in April, I believe in 1969. And shortly thereafter, there's going to be a few major named operations that are going to take place. They're going to sound pretty familiar though. Operation Apache Snow is going to go from May to June. It's going to be about a month-long operation. And Apache Snow is just what we were talking about. It's finding the enemy forces away from the population centers and taking the fight to them, killing as many as possible, reducing their offensive capabilities. During this roughly one-month operation, you're going to see um, about 140 American and about 140 Americans killed in action and an estimated close to 1,000 enemy forces killed in action. Now, a part of that battle is something known as the Battle of Hamburger Hill, which is an incredibly deadly fight right in the middle of this conflict. It's a 10-day fight in the middle of that one-month operation that's going to claim over half the casualties for the overall operation. Robert, newly arrived in Vietnam, is going to participate in Apache Snow, Operation Apache Snow, as well as the Battle for Hamburger Hill. Um, so welcome to Vietnam. Here's some of the deadliest fighting of the war. To, to get started. Now, Hamburger Hill was a contested one. I don't think we're going to dive into it much here, but in short, it was a hill that the Americans took by frontal assault, lost a lot of men, and shortly thereafter moved on and left the hill. So the little, little debate as to whether or not that needed to happen. A lot of lives lost, um, taking a position that we pretty quickly um, ceded back to the enemy, but you'd see that often in Vietnam. So right after Operation Apache Snow ends on, on June 7th, remember, this is kind of a continuation. We just see a lot of operations that have very similar sounding goals. After Apache Snow ends, the next day on June 8th, Operation, Montgom Operation Montgomery Rendezvous kicks off. Montgomery Rendezvous is going to be a very similar operation where instead of, um, well, not instead of, they're still going to be moving around the 101st Airborne and, uh, and other I guess Montgomery Rendezvous is only going to be 101st Airborne Division, but they're going to essentially continue to find, harass, and destroy enemy forces um, away from these population centers a little bit west of the coastline. It's during that operation on the morning of July 11th, 1969, that Roberts and his unit get notified that they are needed to go help one of their sister companies. So, they're spread out amongst this battlefield, and one of their sister companies is pinned down, taking pretty heavy fire and at risk of maybe being overrun. So Roberts and his platoon load up into some helicopters and get ferried over to this location. They're going to – Roberts and a couple of his guys will air assault out of the helicopters, so um, hook up ropes and slide down those ropes from 50 or so feet to secure a landing zone, mark the landing zone. The rest of the troops will come in. And land, not, not necessarily land, the troops will land, the helicopters might hover, and the guys will jump out a few feet above ground. And they get there, 
and they start moving towards the sound of gunfire. Again, this sister company of theirs, so sister within their battalion, is pinned down at risk of being overrun. Roberts and his platoon are coming in to kind of reinforce or hit the enemy force from another side. Probably the latter. If there's a spot that is um, being raked by enemy fire so much so that an entire company can't move, it doesn't make a lot of sense to just add more people to that mess. So they're going to come from a little bit different direction. Now, the enemy is... Um, hold up along a hillside in some fortified positions, but we don't know exactly where. They're pretty well camouflaged, well hidden, um, which is one of the reasons that this infantry company, this airborne infantry company, found themselves pinned down very, very quickly and in need of support. As they're moving to support that company, they come under fire from one of these bunker positions that they couldn't see, didn't know where it was. That initial burst of fire wounds four men directly behind Robert. His platoon goes to ground, goes to take cover, and right away, Robert sees his guys pinned down, unable to do much in terms of maneuvering, and, and a little confused on where this enemy fire is coming from. It's terrifying in a thick, even not a thick jungle. Just when you don't know exactly where the enemy fire is coming from, and that you see it's hitting your guys so it's at least effective, it's terrifying. Well, Robert wastes no time in standing up, and despite the heavy volume of enemy fire, charges directly at that first nearest machine gun position. Firing as he goes, he kills the two soldiers inside, overruns the position. And now having knocked out this bunker, something to keep in mind before I go further, we don't know how many enemy bunkers are there. In retro, now looking back, we can have an idea and I, we know how this battle is going to play out. Roberts didn't know. His men didn't know. It could be one. It's probably more than one, but we have no idea what that number is. Nonetheless, Roberts knocks out that first machine gun nest, turns around to his guys to say, hey, the lane is clear. Let's get moving. And at that time, a second machine gun position that had this one covered in its, in its um, field of fire, open fire, and one of the rounds strikes Roberts' weapon that he's holding. It hits right above the magazine well, destroys the weapon, Falls to the ground, knocks it out of his hand. At that point, he sees this other machine gun position that's now opened up on him. He, his guys certainly can't come up because they're just going to be pinned down further up, and he has no weapon. So he reaches down and picks up an AK-47 from one of the dead soldiers in the machine gun position he just overran. Now, this is great in the movies, and this is great in, in video games, but there's a very, very high – there's a reason this doesn't happen often on the battlefield. There's a reason nobody picks up an enemy weapon and just starts fighting with that. Many soldiers will be able to utilize another weapon system, like an AK-47 that's designed for somebody with no experience to be able to use it. But you're entering into deadly close-range combat. You don't want anything. You don't want to be learning something at that time. So some concerns when you pick up an enemy weapon off the battlefield. Does it work? Does it jam often? Are there any rounds in the magazine? Check that one pretty easily. How many rounds are in the magazine? Two? Eight? 22? That's important to know, especially if you're going to charge across open ground to a machine gun position. Imagine you walk out and get ready to fire and there's two rounds in, that in, the, in the magazine. Bam, bam, and you're out. 
you're not carrying, and as an American soldier, you're not carrying AK-47 magazines. That's a different type of bullet. It's a different type of magazine than the M16. So you might pick that thing up, get two rounds out the chamber, and it's of no use anymore. So there's a lot of risk to pick this thing up. There's a reason that in the military, people train and train and train to the point where it's muscle memory, to where you can replace a magazine without thinking about it, without looking, to where you can pick up a magazine and recognize there's fewer than 10 rounds, or this is a full magazine with 30 rounds. People, they, they you train so much, you, you start to understand those feelings. But now, as his guys are pinned down, and he just got raked with machine gun fire, luckily only hitting his weapon, Robert's only choice is to pick up a weapon system that he's not familiar with. He, he'll know how to operate it, but it's a big risk. He takes it on, charges that next machine gun position, and knocks it out as well. From there, he's got this enemy weapon that nobody knows how many rounds it has in it. He's certainly not carrying AK-47 rounds, but he's got a lot of grenades. So he identifies a third enemy bunker, assaults that bunker, knocks it out with a handful of grenades. At this point, he's still taking fire. The, The shooting hasn't stopped. Remember, we don't know how many machine gun positions an enemy are located along this hillside, but it's a lot. They're pinning down an entire company. So after knocking out these three positions, it almost feels as though Roberts has this momentum carrying him forward. And rather than stopping and going back to his guys, he lets the momentum carry him forward into linking up with the pin down sister company. Relaying information about where his guys are in the nest and the, the machine gun positions that he's just knocked out, kind of completing a line, if you will, that's going to help reinforce everybody. He helps to define that line. And while he's with this other unit, with his guys still back a little ways, he works to ferry wounded soldiers off the battlefield before going back and linking up again with his platoon and tying in the line to continue the fight. Now, for his actions that day, Sergeant Gordon Roberts would be awarded the Medal of Honor. It's, it's in the citation says that he saved at least 20 lives. And I think what we're looking at there is had his platoon continued moving forward up the hillside, they would have fallen right into a deadly crossfire of two three, four enemy bunkers that could have cost the lives of half the platoon more. But something to keep in mind, if his platoon doesn't make it to link up with that company that's pinned down, it might not just been his comp- his platoon that was at least taking heavy casualties. That, that other sister company may have been overrun. So for his actions, for saving that, taking an action that, that had the potential to save that many American lives on um, July 11, 1969, Sergeant Gordon Roberts would be awarded the Medal of Honor. Now he would come home. He would survive the war um, and exit the service in 1971. And what's in a really cool story here, 20 years later, in 1991, Roberts would re-enter the service, earn a direct commission after uh, – er, yeah, earn a direct commission into the United States Army where he would serve until his retirement as a colonel in 2012. So a pretty substantial career um, in the United States Army, starting with a relatively short stint during the Vietnam War, talking about Hamburger Hill, some of the heaviest fighting of the war, earning the Medal of Honor, and then coming back in 1991 and serving another, what, 20-plus years in uniform, retiring at the rank of colonel. The story of then-Sergeant Gordon Roberts earning the Medal of Honor is awesome, using an M16 then an AK-47, and then grenades before linking up with the sister company and helping hold back 
the uh, or helping hold the line against these uh, entrenched enemy positions. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.